Last time we talked with Charlie McMillan, the professor of strategic management and international business at the Schulich School of Business at York University, also the author of nine books. I'll just throw that in. We were talking about Japanification, about the monetary death spiral, about zombie companies. It was just like it was really all over the map. And you know what? We're going to kind of do that again today because so many things I've read and have come across since we last spoke have kind of twigged me. I'm going to start with an easy one because you did talk about this last time, Charlie, the whole question of demographics. So I read the other day, Canada by 2023, so that's tomorrow, we will have more seniors than children for the first time in the nation's history. And researchers have predicted total costs of old age pensions will climb about six times the level of the current military budget in this country. This is a huge issue. Demographics is destiny. Uh, for all Western countries, um, the shift, the dramatic shift from young people to 65 is exonerated by another fact um, led by Japan, but it's true in uh, all, all Western countries. People are living longer. So Japan right. leads the world that men and women, um, women of the high, 86 the average person uh, can live to 86, men are at six, uh, uh, 84. And it means that the old idea of retiring at 65, led by Japan, um, doesn't mean very much because there literally is a shortage of workers. Mm -hmm. And older workers, of course, have memories, they have talent. Um, but the, the shift in the demographics for the Western world is so important, but unfortunately, it's not getting traction in the public sphere. The, the people that really understand this, by the way, are the insurance companies. Right. <laughs> They're big in life insurance and, you know, risk management or whatever. But uh, uh, this issue of demographics is accelerated now with COVID because you have the paradox of shortage of workers in a whole bunch of areas and also a surplus of workers. And of course, what this means for public spending, particularly on healthcare, uh, is actually quite dramatic. You know, that was an, the other thing that I, I read recently, and it, it reminded me of this, that in our healthcare system, and we've seen all the flaws of what happens in seniors' residences and old age homes and even in our hospitals, that we are, as modern countries, devoting vast resources to intensive one-off procedures but we're kind of starving that steady kind of care that clearly we're going to need with an aging population. And, and the and, and added factor that we are not as good as we could be, uh, and the science is pretty clear on that, on preventive measures. Right. Um, so long-term care requires uh, a, a range of issues not only including the homes or the apartments or wherever these people live, but various tools that help senior citizens um, mitigate the risk of, of the disease, obviously, uh, but actually better food, different kinds of food. Um, for example, um, pets. Older people really enjoy pets, but particularly dogs, because it gives them comfort. Right. And there's so many little things, and that's why the two countries that are pretty good at this, um, because they've been aging fast, uh, is Japan. You mentioned J Japan, 
location, that's really what that term means, and Italy, because these are the two Western countries with long histories um, that now understand. They've been working on this now for, I would say, at least three or four decades. Let so I'll give you a small example. When I, in my book on Japan, for example, and this is literally 30 years ago, designing showers and bathtubs or cooking utensils for older senior citizens. So, for example, with kettles, they don't scald themselves. Right. And um, uh, so th this issue is, is now a global issue and, and it involves both the public sector, the private sector. And of course, education. So let people take their pets to the old folks home, to the retirement home, and let's start to build some tools that make it easier for them to do that. Never mind the whole question of how we're going to either train or import personal care workers. There's a whole range of things. And, and um, you know, in, in Toronto, for example, there are volunteer groups that um, visit old homes. Uh, my wife belongs to a singing group. Mm -hmm. And once a month, they go on Monday night and they sing to some of these people. Um, it's an enjoyment factor, but it's also ta a technique to relax people. Um, and and we're just in a new field here where, you know, we have to experiment. And it, it isn't just a matter of government spending. It, there's a lot of other factors that go involved in this. Right. I want to, you've touched on, on this question of food, and I know you're writing uh, a, a new book about agriculture. I love the quote you've got from President uh, John F. Kennedy. The farmer is the only man in our economy who buys everything at retail, sells everything at wholesale, and pays the freight both ways. It's still true today, 2020. Well, one of the um, unsung hero. Um, in modern life is the farmer. Um, farmers basically um, have views of three kinds of people. Um, they're not great fans of academics. <laughs> they're not great fans of politicians. Right. The people they really love are the scientists and the veterinarians because these are the people in a, in a nonpartisan, non-religious, non-whatever, help the farmer with his animals, with the fields and whatever. And as you say, they are beholden, unfortunately, to outside forces that the general public doesn't realize. And a consequence of that, unfortunately, um, we're pretty lucky in Canada, but around the world, you have this paradox, a massive food surplus so in Wisconsin, farmers are putting their milk down the drains mm -hmm. and food shortages, starving people. And so the, the value chain of the global food uh, system um, is out of whack. It needs massive changes. What's a, what, what's a quick fix? What are you thinking? Is I mean, that is so obvious. We can't go around and collect used food and distribute it, although I know people are doing that in local community settings. But you're talking about a global phenomenon here where we have excess production, yet people are still uh, starving. The, the basic problem is that the various um, actors and players in the food chain don't talk to each other. Um, so if you go to a restaurant, one of the problems is that um, 
you know, if, if you don't have customers, the food gets spoiled. Um, if you go to the big food stores, a lot of stuff gets wasted. Uh, you have fresh food mm-hmm. and um, people don't buy it. So, so it's thrown out. Um, the big, the big um, uh, uh, food, food processors um, don't talk to other people in the value chain. It, it's the lack of collaboration in the system, which is the biggest problem. And I think in Canada, because we are a big agriculture producer, there are huge opportunities to get not only the provinces and the federal government working together, but people in the um, food supply chain system, the academics, uh, the veterinarians, um, the vet colleges, um, the science faculties of the universities, um, the food producers. We have to bring these people together. Um, And there's another opportunity. The venture capital industry and the pension funds are getting big into funding new ventures yes everybody uh, know beyond meat and impossible foods i can give you t- 25 examples of that around the world um where people are funding new kinds of ventures and these are companies a lot of them that are sitting there with a lot of cash and capital on hand and and no way or how to spend it well um the good news is that you know a traditional problem in canada our venture capital fund is very weak Basically, in, because of predominant Canada, of right? Banks. But um, I give them credit. BDC, the uh, um, Business Development Corporation, the Farm Credit Corporation, and now the Bank of Montreal is actually funding startups in the food sector. And I think that's a huge opportunity for Canada. Unfortunately, the silo effect uh, in the food chain in Canada is still too, too wide, and it's going to take some leadership to get over that. We also have some other issues going on when you see um, environmental activists and and sometimes the lawsuits they pursue or or other things that really does put the small farmer in some jeopardy, albeit inadvertently in some cases. All you know, sometimes it's direct, but that's also a problem of a conflict. We see that in the energy sector, and we see it in the agriculture sector. And, and, and it affects the Aboriginal communities as well. Right. Uh, you know, if you start from land, because that's the basic ingredient, this goes back for 500 years and Adam Smith and all that, um, and the French understood that with the physiocrats, um, how we deal with land. And mm-hmm. uh, the good news in Canada is that we've got lots of it. In a lot <laughs> of countries, they don't have a lot of it. But most farmers, by nature, uh, want to conserve stuff. And they are quite skeptical about these science uh, imposed solutions like pesticides because they know that in the long term there may be short-term advantages but long-term effects and most farmers some of whom aren't about very educated because they talk to the scientists typically in government about the longer term effects and um, you know i think the environmental movement has a huge role to play in the food system and listening to the farmer about it because a lot as you say a lot these guys have families and they eat the food that they produce they don't want it uh, poisoned or tainted by by the chemicals that they have found ways around this to actually find better farming methods that are more sound well, well exactly and, and a good thing by the way in the agriculture and farm community particularly young farmers how many of these young farmers, um, a, a, they're not old farmers, they're young farmers, right. you know, under 35 or whatever, and they've gone to very good schools, 
And as you know, the, the four main um, um, vet colleges, including one in BEI, but uh, the one in Saskatchewan yeah, in Sask- as well, Saskatoon, are, are booming, are yep, booming for sure. shortage of people. And the good news about these, these veterinary colleges, it's like the business schools in the 1980s, they're working closely with other faculties and other departments. So they're slowly removing the silos that takes place within the university. And I think, you know, places like Saskatchewan have a huge opportunity. The good news, for example, the University of Saskatchewan, it's one of the few universities in North America that has not only a vet college, first class vet college, but a medical school. Mm -hmm. And the science issues are common to both. We saw that at at Guelph at that university as well, where I served as chancellor. They were actually doing uh, work at the huge big vet college there on cancer and animals that was com- was totally applicable to human beings and vice versa. Like we're really starting to merge that stuff when we open up our minds. Well, Guelph is a great example, and the vet college in PEI, yeah. um, you know, it's a nonpartisan. But for example, you know, my older brother Colin is a is a cardiologist. Essentially, the heart of a pig is identical, you know, don't overstate that, of a human. <laughs> it's close. So a, lot yeah. of the, a lot of the research on heart, where they made stunning progress in the last 30 mm-hmm. years, started in the vet colleges. Yep. For sure it did. Okay, let me just, uh, I want to shift gears here a little bit because I want to touch on a couple of other things uh, before we uh, before we go. The, the first response I want to get from you is just what we're seeing on the big tech side. I mean, obviously we're seeing in the COVID world that people are living and working and learning uh, virtually. And so tech has never been more important. We've also seen them become very uh, politically partisan, if I can say that. It differs depending on what uh, uh, country you're in. The U.S. is actually taking them to court uh, at this point, about their absolute control of this, is this an issue that needs to be managed somehow? Do you want to see the state intervene on this, or or do we let this one play out because it just has tentacles into all of the things we've been talking about? Well, um, let me just address two issues in this game. I'm a big believer in the market system. And one of the great advantages, uh, particularly in the United States, is antitrust. Right. To serve as a referee to make sure there's real competition. And as you know, way, way back, uh, antitrust movement, they broke up Standard Oil uh, in the oil industry and they broke up ADT. Um, but when they tried to break up Microsoft, Microsoft as a company was spending more on legal issues than they were spending on R&D. <laughs> So it's, I have to. I think we have to be very careful in, and of course it's an American issue, because right. these are American companies, of how much um, antitrust really applies to this, because there is competition. I think there's a larger issue, uh, and I don't want to get into the U.S. political system. Right. But one of the problems, uh, if you take, you said a macro issue and a global issue. The tragedy is that we are destined, um, for example, if Donald Trump gets reelected, that these tech firms, but uh, it, it's true of a whole bunch of other industries, we're going to have two um, uh, cold wars. Companies that are related to China 
and companies that are related to, let's say, the United States or Europe or Canada or Japan, right? Uh, competing. You got you got one model like the the Chinese internet and the Western internet. This would be a tragedy for the world. And I think there's a, a whole bunch of areas where we've got to be very careful about China, but a whole bunch of areas we have to cooperate. And it's easy to say, the Huawei example about 5G is this idea of having a Chinese model and let's call it a Western model. Mm-hmm. And that would be a tragedy. And I think, I think Canada, uh, Europe, France, uh, Britain, um, Japan, obviously Korea, um, have to guard against this simplistic idea that it, there's a Chinese and the West. But you also have to respond to the fact that you don't want your security systems and your uh, all of your high tech controlled by a Huawei, which is controlled by the Chinese government. Well, we have to be very careful because we're in a new world. You mentioned the digital world. We're in a new world of data. And firms like Facebook and face and and Huawei have the capacity to use this data for other purposes. Correct. At the core of the antitrust. But keep in mind, you mentioned the U.S. antitrust movement only uh, ten days ago or whatever. Europe has been far more advanced on the antitrust issue, imposing, for example, real competition in the high tech world than the United States. The antitrust movement in the United States um, has basically um, been a sleeper issue. I think this recent move is as much for politics to make sure that the Chinese issue was front and center. Um, But Europe has been far further ahead than than the United States on this idea of antitrust and making sure that we have real competition. I want to, as we move toward the end here, just come back to uh, more domestic issues and the the debt uh, that we're seeing on the parts of government, the deficits and the accumulated debt as the spending just continues. I think everybody agrees, of course, we have to, there have to be programs and the government has to reach out. Um, But what kind of constraint can we put on that? Uh, How realistic is a guaranteed annual income? the the level of personal indebtedness and we've seen so many people that are 10 days 2 weeks away from financial collapse and that the covid has really just shone the spotlight on that in a dramatic way are you concerned about where we're headed do you think that we've got a handle on on what we're going how we're going to get through a second wave and maybe longer no i I have a real fear that we're in a juncture where COVID has exposed that a lot of our past assumptions are simply wrong. Uh, You mentioned demographics. Mm -hmm. Uh, We think this population pressure. Uh, You mentioned digitalization. Um, The the shift to digitalization is stunning. Uh, It doesn't affect government very much, unfortunately. Um, A group of us are, are trying to get the government the, the federal government, to think almost we need like a new um, Royal Commission or study group to see where Canada is in the next 20 years um, to help educate the public. Uh, this, I understand the COVID, we have to spend, we have to direct money to certain uh, areas or whatever, but um, we just can't let 
the the debt and the deficit get out of control. We went through this in the 1980s. And when you're in government, it is really, really painful. Um, There are no good solutions. Um, And I think we we stand a opportunity, but we also stand a problem if we let the debt and the deficit get out of control. Um, Because we happen to live in a low interest environment and that can, um, uh, you know, screw up your forms of thinking. Uh, exactly. But this will continue forever. So you're saying let's at least have a royal commission and say let let's look at how we're going to deal with this. But we can't even manage the day to day stuff. Like, what's our fiscal anchor going to be? When are, when are we going to decide that these extraordinary numbers now way north of one trillion dollars? Um, somehow has to be reined in. We have to have a way to look at it. We have to way to manage it. And we have to do well, that not, in the short term. Yeah, I'm not saying a royal commission, but I think yeah. we need a study group. Unfortunately, okay. governments aren't very good at thinking uh, beyond the immediate. Right. Uh, you know, ideally in, in the machinery of government, um, you have people working on day-to-day issues. You have people working, you know, the next year, the next two years and other people looking at the longer term uh, vision. Um, and we've dropped the third issue. And so we need outsiders to come in and in a nonpartisan way, uh, recognize that we're a federation, we have to involve the provinces. Mm-hmm. But there are issues that you're talking about. Um, so for example, demographics. We know that um, the population of Atlantic Canada is in some, New Brunswick and, and, and uh, Newfoundland is dropping. And same thing with Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Saskatchewan, with the land mass, could easily have 10 million people. But uh, it's true. <laughs> how, how you manage these changes um, is an education issue. And I think these kinds of study groups is a great education issue because it explains the media, explains the politicians, explains the bureaucrats, and explains the private sector. Our private sector, unlike uh, you mentioned the tech companies in, in um in uh, Silicon Valley, for example, or in the United States, or you look at Toyota in Japan, Toyota look is looking literally how the global uh, car industry is going to look in 2050. Right. That's 20 years out, 30 years out. How many Canadian companies are thinking five years out, let alone uh, 30 years? And our politicians are thinking about the next election. That's the problem. And I understand that. uh, But you need people. This is where leadership comes in. Um, so the demographics, for example, go back to that. What does this mean for the school system? Right. Um, in, in today's world, we live lifetime learning. The idea that you're finished schooling when you're finished high school, those days are gone forever. And, and um, I, I just think that we need to have, and I think the Senate can play a real, a real role, uh, for instance, because the Senate has been the home of some fantastic studies uh, for example, in the newspaper sector, right. um, to get ahead of the, the stream of the short-term thinking. It's the giant think tank. And and <laughs> and there are tons of really sophisticated people um, in the public service, um, in the universities, um, that are more than willing to help. And I don't think it's a money issue here. I think it's a mobilization factor. Great to talk to you, Charlie. As always, I'm I'm leaving our our listeners with one quote today that I read recently. Modern slaves are not in chains, they are in debt. 
And I think we uh, we need to keep that in mind as the spending continues and whether or not we need some big thinking about uh, some new solutions to these ideas. Thanks. Thanks, Charlie. Great, great talking to you. Thanks. Yeah, great to have Charlie McMillan with us again. We'll see you soon for another edition of No Nonsense with Pamela Wallen.